0: Today we continue in our study of the story of Esther in chapter 3, and I am hoping and praying that each of you are reading ahead and uh, that many of these things are fresh in your minds. So uh, here we go. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still <laughs> He refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March the 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, "'There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire "'who keep themselves separate from everyone else. "'Their laws are different from those of any other people, "'and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. "'So it is not in the king's interest to let them live.'" If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on april 17th the king's secretaries were summoned and the decree was written exactly as haman dictated it was sent to the king's highest officers the governors of the respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages the decree was written in the name of king xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, our God, I thank you for the privilege now of attending to your word. May you find us prepared in mind and heart to receive that which you would have for us. Lord, knowing that you've said that these all are recorded for us to encourage us and to give us hope in our days. So Lord, please uh, be honored as we consider this um, watershed moment in the people of Israel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Being a uh, a teenager in the 80s, so don't do the math, please. We uh, we had a, uh, or I did anyways. a an Indiana uh, an Indiana boy was one of the uh, guys I really like to listen to. Um, John Cougar Mellencamp. He's dropped the Cougar now. It's just John Mellencamp. Apparently, that happens when you get older. You just just go with. Anyway. And uh, his songs resonated uh, with teenagers like myself as uh, they kind of tapped into the teenage angst, right? Uh, uh, you know, i got to spread my wings and do this, do that, all those types of things. And he had a song uh, that you may remember uh, called The Authority Song. Anybody remember The Authority Song? Okay, here's, here's a clue. When I fight authority... Authority always wins. When I fight authority, authority always wins. And then the next line in that chorus, I've been doing it since I was a young man, and I come out grinning. When I fight authority, authority always wins. This was uh, kind of one of those songs touching into that teenage angst, and he saw this as a... uh, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek hey push that push that authority and all of that but that statement it just was rolling through my mind this whole week when i fight authority authority always wins when we uh, move to a biblical perspective to the question of authority we discover very quickly uh, that there is one who is sovereign over all things There is one God, creator, ruler over every single thing that is. He is, as a matter of fact, the final authority in all of our lives. And one day, sooner or later, we will all stand before God, the supreme authority over all things. And the message of Scripture is is clear. When I fight this authority, this authority always wins. Always. And on that day, if we're still persisting in a defiance to the authority of authorities, trust me, as the scripture says, we will not be grinning. We will not be grinning. What is the point? The story here, we find an individual... Uh, Haman one commentator uh, gave him the moniker uh, horrible Haman and I think that is probably appropriate and he uh, uh, was intent on destroying the people of God now God through the prophets has you know spoke very clearly that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you this is one of God's statements towards his people apparently uh, uh, Haman was not either aware of that or he just simply didn't care. Uh, my, my, my bent is the destruction of these people. And he finds out, as you have been reading this story, uh, the hard way that there is nothing good to be gained by going against God. Nothing ever good to be gained by going against God. And it's and in it's, uh, you know, times in our life where we find ourselves pushing and going against God. Somehow we've, we believe that somehow this is a good plan and discover that we've been deceived and we've been lied to. It is never, there's nothing good to be gained by going against God. So we move into the text. Verse one, we find out, Uh, something very important, and we do a little bit of uh, mining into history here. Um, Disobedience has consequences. Obedience has blessing. We see that theme over and over again in Scripture. Disobedience has consequences. Obedience comes with blessings. Now, obedience is not an insulator from difficult experiences or trials or suffering, as Jesus would attest to. But at the end of the day, he was victorious over sin and death, positioned at the right hand of the Father and given the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Clearly, obedience is the best course of action, not disobedience. This man, Haman, is described as an Agagite. Earlier on in chapter 1 or 2, we were introduced to Mordecai, who was a descendant of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. And so we, we take notice of these things, and uh, we kind of run them through the, uh, the, the, the works of uh, Discernment. Okay, why are these here? What's this all about? How would people have understood these names? So forth and so on. Uh, a couple of scriptures I encourage you to pursue later in your studies. Exodus 17, uh, specifically verses 8 through 16. verse 1 Samuel 15, a couple of verses there, 2, 8, and 20. But actually just read the whole chapter. It, when Moses was leading the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, I'm sorry, they were Coming out of slavery, there was a group of people called the Amalekites. And unprovoked, the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel began to strike them down, the group that was kind of in the back of this big horde that was moving, and began to slaughter them, and Moses stopped and turned everything around, and they had to organize a a, a military uh, operation. Some of you remember the story where Moses would then be on top of the mountain, and some of the guys would have to hold his hands up in the air, and then Joshua, they would begin to win the battle if his hands came down they started to lose If some of you remember that story those were the Amalekites an unprovoked attack on God's people and God has said clearly I will curse those who curse you fast forward through all of the judges 400 years later the first king of Israel is a king named Saul who is this is from the tribe of Benjamin, a son of Kish. God gives him a very clear instruction. My judgment now is to fall on the Amalekites. That's your job. Whew. I'm giving you the order. Wipe them out. The story, as you, as you will read in 1 Samuel 15, is that Saul disobeyed God. Disobeyed. Disobedience is consequences. The king of the Amalekites in that particular scene was a king named Agag. Now, assuming we're speaking of the same people, this Haman would be a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag, an Agagite. Mordecai, from the lineage of Kish, same lineage as Saul, who was charged with the task of wiping out the Amalekites in the judgment of God, and he disobeyed. And so now, we sit all through the kings, and then they got to another three, 400 years later, and the disobedience of Saul comes now upon the Jewish people again in the Amalekite descendant Haman whose intent is to absolutely annihilate the Jewish people now we found out in the very first chapter that there are 127 provinces or state traps in the Babylonian Empire the Medo-Persian Empire among those yes is the nation the land of Israel some of the Jews have gone back to Jerusalem at this point in time It is pretty safe to assume that every single Jew is probably contained within the Medo-Persian Empire, which means Haman's edict is an extinction event. It is an absolute move to destroy the people of God, and as we talked about in other other times, the movement of the of the, the enemy, Genesis chapter three, the devil at work escalates. His desire is to destroy the coming one, the promised one, the Messiah who would crush his head. His goal: wipe out all the people of Israel. There is no Messiah. You see how this works. Disobedience has consequences. Obedience his blessings you and I need to know that today we need to understand the reality of the choices that we make there's no such thing as hey a little a little you know disobedience there's those that doesn't exist sin is abhorrent at any degree that we may want to try to minimalize it it still is awful And it comes with consequences. We have a choice. We can stand up to the temptation of our enemy or we can give in to it. Oh, go ahead and tell that story about about him or about her. Go ahead. They're telling stories about other people. Go ahead. Gossip about them. It's no big deal. They're gossipers themselves. Return. Return evil for evil. Hey, tooth. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, they punched you, punch her back. Yesterday I was at the at the at one of the well, it was actually two of the, the different big box stores. Anybody do that yesterday? Wow, that was a mess. <laughs> and I said, I said, to the to the scale, she's got the little vest on, you know. She's just walking. I said, hey, I got a question for you. She goes, yeah, I'll go talk to them down the aisle. I was like, hey, I got a question. I'm just looking for this aisle. Just kept well, yeah. Go talk to them down there, and I'm thinking, who do you think you are? I'm the customer. What's your name? I'm going to the manager. The Lord kind of whispers in my ear, "Tom, you're really not that big a deal." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really not. It's just, it's just kind of funny. And uh, but you know what? Sometimes we want to do that, don't we? Evil for evil. We're going to be tempted. We're going to be pushed. Believing lies. And not only a believer of lies, but then one who will tell other people lies. And sometimes we are deceived to a place where we even think we're telling people the truth. Isn't that something? How the enemy can get, all, get us all twisted and turned all up? Or fear. Do I give in to fear? Do I let fear guide my steps? Or do I let my trust in the Word of God guide my steps? disobedience has consequences obedience blessings and the Bible tells us one of the most wonderful thing about obedience to the word of God and the will of God as led by the Holy Spirit in our lives it is our our cleanest and clearest opportunity to express to God how thankful we are for Him how thankful we are for Jesus to be able to say to Him I love you Obedience to the will and to the word of God equals, I love you, God. Isn't that awesome? Have you ever sat there sometimes marveling at the grace of God and say, God, how can I tell you thank you? How can I tell you how much I love you? He says, well, here's one way. Obey. And, and that obedience will actually be a yet one more blessing for you to be thankful. That's something got to move on verse 3 and 4 Mordecai is at the gate typically those officials at the gate were adjudicating cases of some kind you know it was kind of a common thing but we don't know for sure what Mordecai's official responsibilities were there at the gate he was just there there were a bunch of other guys and this Haman would come in and he would go and everybody had been told hey you know give him a little bow you know that kind of a thing and Mordecai was like mm, it "Ain't happening uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not bowing to an Amalekite. He doesn't say why he didn't bow. But if we, those pieces are all coming together, great. If not, great. Room for other people's opinions or understandings. But Mordecai made a decision. He isn't going to bow to Haman. It never said that he didn't bow to the king when he came by. But Haman, mm-mm, wasn't happening. And there, the other officials uh, observed this. And the pressure came. Hey, Mordecai, what are you doing? Hey, what are you, why aren't you, why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you, you know, you, you better do this. You better, and it says day after day after day. They were leaning on him, pressuring him to conform. One thing that we need to understand as we grow is that pressure, peer pressure, pressure to conform in this old world does not end in our lives when we graduate high school pressure to conform continues your entire life it's it's that in the in the office when people are talking about what they're going to do or what place they're going to go and they don't invite you (laughs) when when everybody else is speaking and you walk into the room and they all get quiet. What is that? That's pressure. You, you're not looking, sounding like, and, and, and boy, the, it, it's going to be very subtle. Here, not so subtle. Hey, you need to start bowing. You need to start bowing. He said, no, no. And apparently his explanation to that was because he was Jewish. Not bowing to him. Not bowing to him. And we see this pressure to conform is not going to let up in our lives. And so we are given this call in in Romans, a letter that Paul wrote, 12 verse 2. He says this, Do not conform to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind So that you will be able to discern the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so, this conforming is a pressure upon each and every one of us to be attentive to in every single area of our life to ask ourselves is what I am doing, is this decision, is this a, a decision, an attitude, a conversation That is connected to an instruction in the word of God. Is this what I am doing here, there, with this, with that, with them? Is it indicative of a vibrant prayer life where the spirit of God has spoken to me as to how to handle that? Or is it simply a reflection to those around me that I am living in conformity to? We need to have a moment of deep, deep introspection in prayer and with the Word of God and to ask ourselves, why do I do with my time that which I do with my time? Why do I treat my spouse the way that I treat them? Why, why do I? Uh, how?" Why am I training my children the way that I am training them? Why do I use the financial resources in my life the way that I do? Why do I use what the talents that God has given me to do A, B, and C? Why? Why? Is it because it is the leading and the nudging and the direction of the Holy Spirit or is it because it's just so easy to do what everybody else is doing and all the reasons why this is such a great idea. Conform, conform, conform. Everywhere you go will be the pressure. Look, do, think, act just like Everybody else. And we need to understand if we're claiming to be a Jesus follower this morning, listen, if the world fits, we're the wrong size. If the thinking of this world, the values of this world, the morals of this world, the decisions of how to invest what God has given us is the same as everybody else, who are we kidding? I'm not following Jesus. I'm following the world. Here we're tested. Here we're pressed. Resist. Do not conform to this world any longer. Continues, verse 5 and 6. Now that Haman is aware of this slight, this unbowing Mordecai. He begins to well up with this five-letter word that is a consumer, a consumer of lives and of families called pride. Pride. How dare this Jewish Mordecai refuse to give me the respect that I deserve, that the king says I deserve? And it was not enough to simply lay hands on Mordecai. Oh, no, 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 no. He began to look for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. No, we've got to take them all out. And you see, pride, pride isn't as insatiable as fire. And just like fire, it will burn you. No escape. I've been to, I don't know how many campfires in my life, and I've never seen one campfire ever say, No, no more wood, I can't take any more wood, stop. They're like, Just keep throwing it in. A fire never says stop. Pride is just as insatiable. There's no coming to an end. And saying, well, that's enough respect. That's enough. Hey, you know, everybody else is at the gate and they're giving me that respect. I don't really care about him. Oh, no. Pride cannot accept that. Pride cannot accept that. It's insatiable. Pride will want to be fed constantly, continuously, and it will result in the life of a person a fire will come and it will burn you and you'll be asking yourself what just happened leaned over and we picked up a whole bunch of coals and set them in our lap and we get burned God calls us not to conform to pride, be transformed and embrace this thing called humility 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 And uh, I've said this a hundred times. This definition for humility, and I'll say it a hundred more till Jesus comes back. Humility, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. The humble person, they don't have anything to prove. They don't. The the humble person doesn't have anything to lose. Well, you don't want to bow to me? I really don't care. I don't have anything to lose. The proud person can't stand that. The humble. And it's a definition by Chuck Swindoll, by the way. Credit where credit's due. And I love that. It's stuck with me. And, I, and I, I'm still learning, as I've never been done learning. Still learning the, the wonder of this beautiful thing called humility. There are, <laughs> there are people that I might just golf one time with. And it kind of goes like this. I hit a bad shot, and all of a sudden the club's flying in the air. And all of a sudden there's stomping and mad and anger and just out of control. And, and I think to myself, dude, you're not that good. <laughs> if you were that good, you'd be playing on TV Sunday afternoons. You are taking yourself, what do we say, way seriously this is the prideful person they take themselves way too seriously this humility piece says I don't I don't have to prove anything to you my obligation as a Jesus follower to you is to love you to sacrifice for you to serve you to wash your feet as Jesus has washed mine I don't come to you to try to get something from you as a Jesus follower, to get your approval, to get your attention, to get your applause, to get your smile on my life. No, I come to you to give. The humble comes to serve, not to be served. The humble does not look for a validating of their personhood from other people. They find that fully satisfied in Christ, who died for them, who helps them, and who tells them, I love you, your life matters, you as a person are priceless. I will withhold nothing to rescue you, not even my own son. God speaks value into our lives. And Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, no one will snatch you from my hands. This picture of significance and security, all found in Christ And there, then, we can move out in this humility, living with nothing to prove, nothing to lose. James, Jesus' brother, was writing, James 4, 6 and 7, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that word oppose carries with it this understanding of of an army in full battle array against can you get that picture? God in full battle array against the proud. That's not going to go well. But the humility, the person of humility, the humble person, God gives grace upon grace upon grace. A very different story, a very different journey. Oh, there is nothing good to be gained by going against God and it is pride that will fuel that effort every time we come to verse 7 In the month of April during the 12th year of Xerxes reign lots were cast these lots had the name Purim Jewish people celebrate the festival of Purim every year And it comes from this verse here, Purim being the name for the lots that were cast to determine the date in which they would be all slaughtered. I celebrate this uh, feast of Purim coming from this story here, uh, this long-rooted enemy of the people of Israel determining when to slaughter all of them the day selected is March 7th nearly a year later and here we see again the providential hand of God That God makes a way when there is no way how is there a way to save these people this is this is absolute annihilation of the Jewish people how is this gonna play out how is this gonna work this guy he's, he's in this position he can set things up in such a way to destroy them all Proverbs 16:33 reminds us that the lots are cast, but God determines how they land. Isn't that interesting? And here we see them landing almost a year later. Almost a year later. Giving the people of Israel time to prepare for this date that has been chosen through the lots by horrible Haman. Fascinating. To note that when this edict went out, when it was sent out and written as Haman directed it, promising the king 10,000 large sacks of silver, we're easily going to get that from killing all these Jews, and we're going to take all their money, and we're going to give it to you easily, represented 70% of the king's annual tax income. King, we're going to give that to you. Oh, okay. April seventeenth, if everything is as it is, and we counting and looking and so forth and so on, would have come out the day before Passover for the Jewish people. Passover, one of the greatest feasts uh, uh, for the Jewish nation. it commemorates that moment where God uh, stepped in very powerful ways and and delivered the people of Egypt from slavery uh, and and set them free with Moses at the helm. Celebrate Passover every year one of the greatest celebrations of all and it takes a long time to get ready and to prepare as we would think in terms of preparing for a, a Christmas celebration in our worlds. And in the middle of the preparations If the calculations are correct, the day before the actual Passover, here comes this edict. We're going to kill all the Jews. All of them, said the edict. So now people are put in a very, very odd emotional space. Hey, here's the Passover, which is a celebration of God's deliverance. And here is Haman's edict, an edict of impending destruction. Where will my eyes be focused in this moment? What will have my attention in this particular situation? Will I choose faith and keep my eyes on the victory in the wonder of God's deliverance in Passover or will I direct my attention in fear to Haman's decree you and I every single day of our lives we make that decision multiple times a day as a matter of fact am I going to choose to live in faith in the midst of this situation good bad neutral whatever it is do I have my eyes of faith believing and trusting in God Understanding that God can make a way, believing and trusting in Him in the midst of what may be very difficult circumstances? Or will I choose fear and be a captive? Be a captive to fear and live in worry and anxiety and not the freedom that only faith in God can bring. The decision is ours. Where are your eyes these days? The God who delivers in Passover or in the edict of Haman who announces destruction. I want to close with this psalm, Psalm of David, as he makes a decision to choose the eyes of faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside the peaceful streams. He, he renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. And even, even when I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you, are close beside me your rod and your staff protect and comfort me you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies you anoint me by anointing my head with oil and my cup overflows with blessings surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I to live in the house of the Lord